Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. You can also find my podcast on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, all of those places. I also have a blog that you can check out. I haven't written in that for uh, quite a while, but there's some good stuff there, I think. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. And if you want to shoot me an email, I'd love to hear from you. And my email address is rich at cagerredux.com. That's R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. All right. Today is May 17th, 2022. And in this episode, we're going to talk about the regulatory crisis that exists in college sports today. And I'm going to talk about that in the context of name, image, and likeness. And this interim guidance that the Division I Board of Directors sent out on May 9th, that has been roundly criticized and for good reason. And I'll talk about that when I go through this memo. But I, I want to talk about the regulation of college sports and the enforcement of its principles and values in, in a broader context, because I think what's happening now simply is a symptom of some underlying structural flaws in the entire regulatory model that have existed really since the 1950s and the Walter Byers era. And I think it's really important to understand the history of the NCAA's regulatory authority to fully appreciate what's happening right now in what the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries are portraying as a crisis of name, image, and likeness activity. They don't like this market, and I'm going to talk a little bit about why I think that's the case. And the coverage in the NCAA-friendly, Power 5-friendly, compliant sports media has been comical almost. It's almost impossible to keep up with all of the stories and all the narratives and some of the tension among in between narratives. And I'm going to devote a separate episode to that by pulling some of these articles and talking about them a little bit. But what we see right now is name, image, and likeness derangement syndrome. So I want to start with this guidance memo that came out last Monday. And the full title of it is Interim Name, Image, and Likeness Policy Guidance Regarding Third-Party Involvement. And that third-party involvement is so important. This guidance is really the first word that we've heard from the NCAA governance structure. And this came from the Division I Board of Directors, not from the NCAA president or anybody on the NCAA Board of Governors, but this is from the Division I Board of Directors. This focus on third-party involvement is really important because, as I discussed in the last episode, the uh, NCAA's voluntary regulation of college sports has some important limitations, and that is that the NCAA has virtually no control over third parties that are not subject to NCAA infractions and enforcement jurisdiction. The NCAA is comprised of the member institutions, and it exercises its 
enforcement and infractions powers through the institutions. So you have the institutions basically being held accountable for the actions of third parties in some cases, or the NCAA wants to interpret their rules in a way that makes the institutions accountable because it's a way to try to regulate people and interests that are not subject to direct NCAA regulation. And the NCAA has tried to do that directly through protective federal legislation. And they did that back in the 80s and 90s with athlete agents and the brouhaha over these agents that were paying athletes under the table and compromising the talent pool. And I haven't done a deep dive on the history of that. It's really interesting, but that's a good example of third parties that the NCAA has no direct regulatory authority over and who the NCAA and Power Five have believed are interfering with the status quo business model and the absolute iron-fisted control that the NCAA and Power Five have had over the labor pool. So agents are bad news. They are bad actors in the eyes of the NCAA. And in 2004, I believe it was, the NCAA was successful in getting Congress to pass the Sports Agents Responsibility and Trust Act, SPARTA. And it really doesn't have a lot of teeth. It, it places some oversight of athlete agent activity in the Federal Trade Commission. I don't know if that agency has ever taken any formal action with respect to athlete agents. And then in conjunction with that, the NCAA was working with the Uniform Law Commission, which I think in the late 90s, I believe it was, created a uniform athlete agent law that most states have now adopted. And that law reflects the NCAA's values. They are very pro-NCAA Power 5 interests and not really protective of any athlete interests. And uh, I haven't researched how many athlete agents have actually been prosecuted or disciplined under those athlete agent laws. A lot of them, I think most of them actually have criminal penalties that apply to the agents. And some have had criminal pen penalties that apply to the athletes. So they were really bringing the hammer down on the athletes and, and the agents. And then the NCAA has always been attentive to the third parties known as boosters. And boosters are defined as any person or entity that is formally affiliated with a university. And that would include anybody who's donated uh, money to the university. They have to walk a, a tightrope here in their propaganda against boosters and their attempts to regulate boosters. Because on the one hand, they're accepting money from these people and some very powerful booster donors have been involved in acquiring talent and then having really inappropriate influence in athletics departments. And, and that's not something that just sprung up in this nil market. That's been going on for decades and it has always been a problem. But as with so many hypocrisies in the business model, the institutions are very happy to accept the benefits of the money that these booster donors bring in, but they don't want them to do uh, anything that could compromise the labor pool or the control over the labor pool. But you've had all this propaganda running through the NCAA about the 
evils of wayward boosters and they are bad actors. All the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have at the ready the list of uh, booster crises that have occurred over the years. And this goes back a long, long time. And it uh, was on steroids at SMU in the football program in the 1980s. And that's the poster event that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries point to when they are trying to make the case for the regulation of booster activity. But the NCAA has a good number of rules and policies that relate to boosters. That's what this memo that came out last week was built around. And uh, now with the name, image, and likeness market, you have another class of third-party actors in the marketplace that the NCAA doesn't like. And those are all of these name, image, and likeness companies that are offering opportunities for athletes and giving advice on compliance. And there's a whole industry that has sprung up very quickly around this nil market. And the uh, Power Five, primarily, and, and the NCAA now secondarily, they don't like this market. They don't like these third-party companies influencing the athletes and directing them to opportunities that threaten the gravy train. And that, that, at least that's the perception of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. So you have these three external actors, agents, boosters, the nil companies, and in the eyes of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries, they are a problem. And the real issue there isn't necessarily the activity of these individuals themselves. It's, it's the perceived consequence. And the perceived consequence is that these outside entities, outside actors, third parties, are going to either tamper with the labor pool and under NCAA rules render uh, high-value athletes ineligible, or in, in this nil marketplace, money that's going into the pockets of these athletes, the athletes who provide the value in the product, that that is money that would otherwise be going to the institutions. And that false narrative is rooted again in silly zero-sum thinking. We don't know what this nil marketplace really looks like because we don't have any reliable data. And that's a problem here. But you have the NCAA and the, now the Power Five, more importantly, now that they are really in control of the voluntary regulation of college sports after this constitutional makeover, doing everything in their power to slow this nil marketplace. This guidance memo is a good example of that. As I've discussed before, and this is a really important dynamic in this dysfunctional regulatory model, and that is that because the voluntary regulators, the NCAA and now the Power Five, don't have much direct control over these third parties, they just bring the hammer down on those that they can control. And that's the member institutions and through the member institutions, the athletes. And the athletes that they're most concerned about are the athletes that could interfere with the gravy train revenue streams. And that means football and men's basketball players, which means, of course, that this focus on those sports means that African-American athletes are disproportionately in the crosshairs of NCAA infractions and enforcement. And it is asymmetrical warfare. It is fear-based. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that when I talk about the beginning of the NCAA's regulatory and enforcement authorities in the 1950s. But this memo, this interim name, image, and likeness policy guidance regarding third-party involvement is really interesting because I think it is a window into the current 
dysfunction and ineffectiveness of the voluntary regulation of college sports and the enforcement and infractions program. So I'm just going to talk about a few features of this guidance, and it is indeed merely guidance. There are no rules changes here. There's really not a suggestion that the uh, NCAA is going to be coming in or, or the Power Five are going to be coming in with their new infractions and enforcement authorities after this constitutional makeover to try to get this market under control. So just for background, the primary threat that this guidance memo addresses are these name, image, and likeness collectives, which are separate entities that are run, we think, by groups of boosters that have an affiliation with certain institutions. And these collectives are offering nil packages both to current NCAA athletes, but importantly to high school athletes. And the NCAA and the Power Five believe that is nothing more than disguised pay-for-play and improper recruiting inducements. But one of the interesting things about that is that we really don't know what these collectives are doing. And I think that reflects really the hypocrisy in the regulation of boosters because a lot of these Power 5 schools are benefiting enormously from these collectives and and they may be okay with them. You're back into the winners and the losers in the competitive advantage-disadvantage market in the talent acquisition market. The winners are going to go with whatever pathway they think gets them to uh, better talent and more victories and more prestige and power and branding and social currency and money, 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 all the things that universities seek in their use of big talent college sports to achieve institutional interest. And Henry Pritchett talked about that in 1929, and it is even more true today. So it's not clear what the regulators, whether it's the NCAA or the Power Five, are going to do to really take a look at what's actually happening in this market. These collectives are really in the same boat with the athlete agents, the boosters, the true third-party name, image, and likeness companies that are trying to do this by the book. But they have no jurisdiction over the collectives, and they can't come in and say, provide us your documents and sit down with us and tell us what's really going on here. So their only pathway there is back to threatening the member institutions and threatening to bring the hammer down on them. And I just don't sense from the language of this memo that the uh, NCAA or the Power Five at this point have the stomach for that. And it's important to remember that uh, in this kabuki theater exercise, the decision makers are at the top of the food chain in the Power Five. So you got Greg Sankey, uh, head of this transformation committee. And again, under the new constitution, the division one institutions can do whatever they want to with infractions and enforcement. And we haven't seen a rush by Sankey and the committee to create an emergency name, image, and likeness investigatory panel under the new authorities to try to get this under control in the power five where this collective activity is most common. And uh, the chair of the division one board of directors is University of Georgia president, Jerry Moorhead. He also is the, I think he's the chair of the SEC's conference entity. So the SEC has a really powerful voice in all this. And do you think that the 
NCAA, independent of uh, the divisional authorities that the Power Five have, is going to come in and open an investigation into an SEC school like Texas A&M. There have been rumors swirling around Texas A&M really since the beginning of the liberalization of the SNL market. And do you think that Greg Sankey or the Transformation Committee is going to look under the hood of the Alabama football program or the Georgia football program or Tennessee or Florida? So let me talk a little bit about this memo and the way that it's constructed. And I guess I should point out that the Division I Board of Directors had tasked the Division I Council to form a working group on name, image, and likeness and the changes in the market that have occurred since July 1st when this interim policy went into effect. This guidance memo has a section titled Background, which gives the context for the recommendations and the guidance of the working group through the Division I Board of Directors, and it begins. Effective July 1st, 2021, the NCAA adopted the interim name, image, and likeness policy, allowing NCAA student-athletes the opportunity to benefit from their NIL. The NCAA Division I Council Working Group on NIL recognizes that many student-athletes are benefiting positively from NIL opportunities consistent with the interim NIL policy. The working group believes 10 months into the new NIL environment is an appropriate time to review the emerging NIL environment and whether NIL activities are impacting school choice and transfer, particularly relating to the involvement of individuals and entities that promote or support a specific institution. Then the next paragraph. As noted in the NCAA Division I Board of Directors charge, the expectation of the membership and representatives of their athletics interest is that they are abiding by current NCAA rules regarding recruiting and pay for play in order to reinforce key principles of fairness and integrity across the NCAA and maintain rules prohibiting improper recruiting inducements and pay for play the working group offers the guidance below on how current NCAA legislation applies to the nil environment specifically to third parties involved in the recruiting process. This is really a clever setup because the Division One Board of Directors, which should be speaking out on these issues, has sent this down to the Division One Council, which is going to do the bidding of the Division One Board of Directors. So this isn't coming directly from the Board of Directors. This is the advice, guidance, and counsel of this working group of the Division One Council. And then they have a section, third parties defined as boosters. They portray a very sweeping definition of booster, and they say, uh, as a starting point, it's important to understand how a representative of, of athletics interest booster is defined by NCAA legislation. A booster is in part defined as an individual, independent agency, corporate entity, in parent apparel or equipment manufacturer. And that was an, an important inclusion because that's going to be an issue in this Kansas basketball infractions and enforcement case because in that case, NCAA is taking the position that Adidas was acting as a booster and that it's conduct should be imputed to Kansas. And, and that's uh, tricky territory. I'll, I'll talk about that in another episode. And it goes on to say, or other organization who is known or who should have been known by a member of the institution's executive or athletics administration to have participated in or be a member of an agency or organization promoting the institution's intercollegiate athletics programs or to assist or to have assisted in providing benefits to enrolled student athletes and their family members. Wow. 
that's a mouthful. And then there's a paragraph, and this is in full, bold language. And it says, it appears that the overall mission of many, if not all, of the above-referenced third-party entities, and they put above-referenced third-party, not just in bold, but it, that's underlined, is to promote and support a specific NCAA institution by making available nil opportunities to prospective student-athletes and student-athletes of a particular institution, thereby triggering the definition of a booster. And that part is underlined as well as in bold. So you have all kinds of emphasis there. And then they go on to say, with this in mind, NCAA rules related to the involvement of boosters and recruiting activities remain relevant to the interim nil policy. Specifically, NCAA rules preclude boosters from engaging in recruiting activities, including recruiting conversations on behalf of the school. And they go on. Uh, finally, it's important to note that existing NCAA prohibitions related to pay for play have not changed as a result of the interim policy. And then the next section is titled Guidance related to prospective student athletes. And then there's a section after that that talks about guidance to current student athletes. And then they have the applicable NCAA Division I legislation, and they do all that in bullet points. And it does nothing more than restate NCAA rules, which have been on the books in their current iteration for years, I went back to the NCAA Division I manual, and in this section on the relevant NCAA legislation that should address all of these issues, there were maybe, gosh, I don't know, eight or nine sections of the manual they refer to, and all of them have been on the books for a long, long time. Uh, and they relate to three areas, uh, booster involvement, pay-for-play, recruiting inducement, and institutional control. All of this is being sent down to the institutional level. And importantly, there is nothing in this memo that suggests in any way that the NCAA or the Power Five through their new divisional authorities are going to come in and do a damn thing about it. So now I want to talk a little bit about the history and purpose of NCAA rules and the enforcement of those rules. And really, the NCAA's regulatory authority has had two primary purposes. One is to promote the propaganda and, and the values as the uh, underlying purpose of the voluntary regulation of college sports. And that has run through all of the integrity propaganda and the amateurism, student-athlete, co collegiate model propaganda. That has been the values-based justification for regulation. But the truth of the matter is, and the true purpose of the regulation was to fix the cost of athlete labor in the revenue-producing sports, football and men's basketball, to have compensation limits that really defined the fixed cost of labor at the value of an athletics scholarship, and then to regulate the talent acquisition market. And that goes to this fundamental and insane battle for competitive advantage in recruiting. And that drives so much of the business model and the regulatory model. So you had this duality and another layer of duality in the uh, business model of big time college sports. And, and this is at the voluntary regulation level. So you, you have professing the amateur virtue to the outside world in terms of your regulation, the justifications for your regulations, but they were really nothing more than disguises for fixing the cost 
of labor. And Walter Byers, who I'm going to talk about in just a minute, who invented this entire regulatory model and the infractions and enforcement process, said in his 1995 tell-all book on sportsmanlike conduct that amateurism was nothing more than camouflage for monopoly practice. I think that really says it all. So how did the NCAA acquire its regulatory authority? And that's really important to understand as well, because it came about through the product of bluff, bluster, and blind luck, and then a fear-based consent of the governed, the member institutions. And as I talk about this, I just want to note that my primary sources for explaining this regulatory model are Walter Byers, the man who created it, and then a really important book that was written in 2004, The 50-Year Seduction, uh, that was written by Keith Donovan, that is one of the most important books on college sports. If you want to understand the motivations of the decision makers in college sports and the regulatory model and the business model, it's a must read. But Byers talks with pride about how he led the NCAA to the acquisition of meaningful regulatory authority and enforcement jurisdiction. And there were two important events that occurred in the early 1950s that Walter Byers used to manufacture the illusion of iron-fisted regulatory control. The first was a point-shaving scandal involving Kentucky basketball. And there was credible evidence that that point-shaving had occurred. So Byers came in and he basically threatened a boycott of Kentucky basketball if the decision makers at the institutional level and then at the conference level didn't acknowledge the wrongdoing and accept punishment. It was a power play, and it was a bold, audacious power play given that it was being directed to Kentucky basketball. And after discussions with the conference and then with the leaders at the University of Kentucky, the NCAA got a really important victory in its quest for regulatory authority because the university and the conference agreed to a one-year ban. And I think that really raised the profile of the NCAA as a regulator in college sports. And then at or about the same time, the NCAA and Walter Byers stared down the University of Pennsylvania primarily and, and Notre Dame secondarily with respect to its attempts to monopolize the televised football market. So you had TV coming into mainstream use in America in the 1950s, and there was a lot of discussion about whether or how big-time college sports should engage with that new technology. And it was aggressively pursuing the opportunities in televised football. And it decided that it was going to do uh, TV contracts. They had a couple of experimental years to see what impact it would have on the market. Because there was a pretty strong belief back then that uh, televised football was going to be a detriment to the business model. Because if people could watch the games on TV, they weren't going to show up for the games. It would kill live attendance. And, and that myth survived for decades, really. 
but you had the NCAA looking at getting into that market. And at the time, the University of Pennsylvania and Notre Dame already had pretty sophisticated television packages. They were way ahead of the curve, very progressive, particularly Penn, in exploiting television as a marketing opportunity. And Penn, I think, proved that you could do televised football deals and not impact your live attendance because they were getting money from a couple of television deals and also filling Franklin Field in Philadelphia. So uh, the NCAA said to Penn and to Notre Dame that they had to give up those contracts because the NCAA was going to monopolize televised football. And it was an extraordinary power play. And it was big and it was bold. The University of Pennsylvania and Notre Dame had some pretty good antitrust arguments, a, a precursor to what unfolded in, in Board of Regents, that the NCAA can't monopolize this market. But Walter Byers was very savvy in garnering support for the NCAA's position and the membership by overwhelming majority votes were prepared to boycott Penn and, and Notre Dame if they didn't heal to the NCAA's wishes. And ultimately, Penn caved and they gave up their football contracts. So did Notre Dame. On the backside of that football stare down and then the Kentucky basketball stare down, the NCAA, at least at the perception level, was a very powerful regulatory authority. And Walter Byers then took the momentum from those two fortuitous events, and he put together an infractions and enforcement team at the national office that operated like a secret government. And it was a really interesting model because the NCAA national office simply didn't have the resources to be an effective police force for all of college sports. So Byers put together this regulatory model that was uh, really based on two components. One was voluntary reporting and self-policing. And the philosophy was that you at the institutional level are responsible for the integrity principles of the NCAA and all the amateurism-based rules and the enforced cost of labor and then the recruiting rules. That puts some pressure on the institutions through these cooperation provisions that had pretty draconian penalties. If you violated a self-reporting requirement or you refused to cooperate with the NCAA, at least on paper, the NCAA could bring the hammer down. So that was one component. The second was active enforcement. And this was really where buyers wanted to inspire fear. The approach of the NCAA national office was really through asymmetrical warfare. And again, this is directed primarily to the revenue producer sports because that's what really matters to the regulators of college sports. So you had buyers uh, coming in and really swinging the NCAA's hammer very selectively. One of the criticisms of that approach, and Jerry Tarkanian really focused on this in his war with the NCAA, is that there was no rhyme or reason to how the NCAA exercised that authority, but they did it with a totalitarian take-no-prisoners approach approach that scared the hell out of the member institutions. And again, a lot of this was just bluff and bluster. But people were afraid of the NCAA. They were afraid of Walter Byers. And I think the member institutions would rather see a team of IRS agents
agents show up at their doorstep than a team of NCAA investigators. And that really speaks to the power of Bayer's propagandized enforcement authority. And there is some rough logic to that approach because the NCAA didn't have the resources of the IRS or thousands and thousands of agents to send out into the field. So they inspired fear through selective prosecution and asymmetrical warfare that in turn incentivized the institutions to take more seriously their self-reporting obligations and their uh, cooperation requirements. So it was an interesting system, but it was just corrupt as hell at the values level because it wasn't designed to preserve the integrity of college sports. It was designed to preserve the compensation limits, regulate the labor force. And from 1951 to 1981, the NCAA not only had a monopoly over the televised football market, it had a monopoly over the voluntary regulation of college sports and the infractions and enforcement process. And what happened in 1981? You had the Board of Regents lawsuit where the powerful football schools, mostly from the South, sued the NCAA under antitrust laws trying to dismantle the NCAA's monopoly over televised football, and they won. And on the backside of that, you had the big-time powerful football interests always seeking to segregate their interests from the rest of the NCAA, enhance their autonomy so that they could do their own thing under the NCAA umbrella without having to leave and form their own association. And they were very successful at that, in large part because the NCAA's consolation prize was the March Madness Tournament, and they started marketing the ever live in hell out of that. And if the Power Five left the NCAA, the basketball product would likely go with it and the NCAA would collapse. And that has been this detente that exists that I've talked quite a bit about post Board of Regents. But the powerful football interests really leading up to Board of Regents were aggressively trying to segregate their interests from the rest of the NCAA. They did that in 1978 with the creation of what is now the FBS category in Division I. Uh, then, of course, in conjunction with that assertion of power by the football interest, you had the Board of Regents case. And then in the 1990s, a very important thing happened. The Power Five really gained control of the governance process. And in 1996, the NCAA eliminated one school, one vote legislation, which essentially gave these smaller schools across the three divisions the authority to veto any legislation that was uh, friendly to the, the big-time powerful football interests. And that was gone in 1996. One school, one vote was gone, and it was replaced by a federated system that was top-heavy with uh, Power Five interests, or what are now Power Five interests. And so the, the uh, big-time football interests gained control of the governance process. And, and that was, I think, a product of Board of Regents. And then, of course, in 2013-2014, you had the Power Five initiate the autonomy movement and this request for complete segregation from the schools in the FBS. And this legislation applied only to the Power Five. And the Power Five's motivation there was to allay some of the equity concerns that were being raised in the O'Bannon case, which was pending at the time. And then also cynically taking crisis and turning it into opportunity and creating essentially an insurmountable competitive advantage over the group of five conferences, the have-nots in big-time football, by offering a package package of benefits that the group of five simply couldn't afford. So they essentially priced the group of five out of competition for the best talent. 
and they were doing it under the NCAA umbrella. And what resulted from that rolling power grab was a very carefully calibrated competitive advantage for the Power Five that was enforced by the NCAA. So through all of those manipulations of the regulatory model by the big-time football interests, you still had the NCAA doing the dirty work. And because of Board of Regents, the Power Five football interests kept their money to themselves, and it was only basketball money that funded all of the NCAA operations, including enforcement and infractions. So you have the Power Five football interests having their cake and eating it too, but the NCAA was still monopolizing the infractions and enforcement process. And it's important to note, and I talked about this in my pay-for-play series on that a really important year of 2014. And then in my episode on this constitutional makeover, and I, I think it was titled Power 5 Autonomy 2.0. During the autonomy debate in 2013-2014, the Power 5 made clear to the NCAA that it not only wanted this uh, separate classification and the authority to legislate outside of the whole NCAA legislative process, but they also wanted their own information fractions and enforcement process as part of autonomy. And they made a, a case for that and said, look, we're special. We have unique interests. The consequences for the asymmetrical warfare that the NCAA National Office has used since Walter Byers has a disproportionate negative impact on us. So they wanted their own infractions and enforcement. They didn't get it in 2013. So even after autonomy, the NCAA still was in control of and monopolized the two most important regulatory powers in college sports. The first is the overarching compensation limit. So even though the autonomy legislation gave the Power Five the authority to do a few things, to offer a few extra benefits, it was still subject to the overarching compensation limit, and the amateurism rules weren't waived for autonomy legislation. And then the second power is that the NCAA still had control over the enforcement and infractions process because the Power Five didn't get that. They wanted it, they didn't get it. So then we move out of that autonomy period and through the end of the O'Bannon litigation, and again, O'Bannon kind of ended as a mixed bag, and I would argue that it was probably more favorable to the NCAA than to the athletes. But then we had Austin, and Austin happened to coincide with the beginning waves of the name, image, and likeness movement. And that started really in May of 20, actually, no, it was March of 2019 with the Mark Walker bill, the congressman from North Carolina, who was going to use the hammer of the IRS as a tool to force schools to offer meaningful name, image, and likeness benefits. Then you had the NCAA coming in to try to commandeer the discussion at or about the same time that the state of California was talking about the, the name, image, and likeness bill there, SB 206, the Fair Pay to Play Act, which was enacted into law. And I believe the end of September, if I recall correctly, of 2019. And then you really saw the NCAA trying to get ahead of the name, image, and likeness issue after having militantly opposed it in the O'Bannon case, which was a name, image, and likeness case. And then after threatening the state of California as it was enacting the Fair Pay to Play Act, and they said, we're going to sue your ass and we're going to do it under the Dormant Commerce Clause, a uniformity theory, which has some merit. There's a case in the Ninth Circuit that goes to that issue. But 
you had the NCAA then shifting gears and focusing all their attention on trying to eliminate these external regulatory threats through protective federal legislation. And that's when they began their hardcore lobbying in 2019 and into 2020 and 2021. And for a variety of reasons, and I think in part, Mark Emmert's ineffective leadership and his uncanny ability to piss off people in Congress, the NCAA didn't get what it wanted in Congress. And the Power Five were letting the NCAA take the lead on that. And then they tried to jump in to accelerate the legislative process. And it just didn't play out the way they hoped it would play out. Then the Republicans lost control of the Senate. And it's a whole new day in terms of athletes' rights. That could change with the midterms. But you still had the NCAA essentially driving the train at the voluntary regulatory level. And uh, they were enforcing the overarching compensation limit on the cost of labor. They were running infractions and enforcement and enforcing the rules that it chose to enforce. And they were leading the engagement with Congress. And the centerpieces of that engagement were three federal protections and immunities that, if granted, would have ended the athletes' rights movement. The NCAA and uh, Power Five wanted absolute antitrust immunity to take federal courts and antitrust lawsuits completely off the table. They wanted federal preemption of any and all state laws that interfered in any way with the NCAA's compensation limits or regulatory authority. And then they wanted this uh, provision that athletes can be employees. And if they had gotten those three things, or, or even a combination of those three things, the uh, panic that we're uh, seeing right now wouldn't exist. And we wouldn't be sending powers from the national office down to the divisions. This is all a product of what happened in the summer of 2021. And in my judgment, gross miscalculations, strategy miscalculations by the NCAA, both in federal litigation and their decision to appeal Austin to the U.S. Supreme Court, and then in their failure to get anything meaningful out of Congress. Then in June of 2021, uh, a month before the July 1st deadline, when all these state laws were going into effect on name, image, and likeness, the NCAA went to the Senate Commerce Committee on its knees, begging at least for federal preemption to nullify those state name, image, and likeness laws. And on June 9th, it looked like they may have had a shot at that. They really went with a full court press, and they, I believe, had some momentum in that regard. Then you had that athlete-oriented hearing on June 17th, which took some of the wind out of the NCAA sales. And then just four days later on June 21st, you had the Austin decision, a unanimous decision, which really didn't give the athletes much in terms of tangible benefits. But the unanimity was symbolic, and the way that the court talked about amateurism really dealt a substantial body blow to amateurism as a value and justification for a corrupt business model. And I think the NCAA still was considering a federal lawsuit under the Dormant Commerce Clause under a theory of uniformity, saying that all these state name, image, and likeness laws posed an impermissible burden on interstate commerce because the NCAA couldn't comply with theoretically 50 different standards. But I think after the Austin decision, a lawsuit like that would have been really bad news for the NCAA, particularly from a public relations standpoint, because it would have been a flip-off to the United States Supreme Court. And a dormant commerce clause case could wind up in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. So the NCAA really didn't have a plan D. They had plans A, B, and C, and they all fell apart. So at the very last minute, they dump all their nil garbage at the feet of the institutions, enact this interim policy, which really offers very little guidance. It says uh, no pay for play, no recruiting inducements, but it really took the NCAA out of the game when it came to enforcing 
name, image, and likeness restrictions. And I have discussed in prior episodes why I think that was an overreaction to Austin. The NCAA reacted to that as if the Austin court had actually struck down amateurism itself. It did no such thing, and its ruling was limited to the four corners of the injunction, which did not in any way implicate the the bigger question of whether all amateurism-based compensation limits are a violation of federal antitrust laws. So even though the NCAA technically still had the authority to enforce amateurism rules and inducement rules, they voluntarily backed out through this interim policy, which means that they affect effectively surrendered their monopoly over both the overall compensation limits as expressed in the nil marketplace and also importantly over their monopoly of the infractions and enforcement process. So under this interim policy, the NCAA turned the regulation and enforcement of name, image, and likeness over to the member institutions and also to the states that had laws going into effect on July 1st. And what we have seen since that cowardly dump on the institutions is the battle for competitive advantage and disadvantage just going on steroids. And these institutions, the Power Five institutions, have proven incapable of exercising any self-control, any self-restraint. And they are going to do anything in their power to at least keep up with the Joneses, but hopefully uh, have a competitive advantage over the Joneses. And these uh, state laws, which were supposed to have uh, meaningful teeth at the enforcement level, have proven to be virtually meaningless. And some of those state bills had the Secretary of State responsible or some consumer affairs body or some new commission, but there's been zero enforcement activity at the state level. And in that regard, I just want to talk a little bit about the state legislation. There was all this brouhaha about this pending state legislation that started with the California law and then these other states were coming in. Florida passed a law that was going to go into effect on July 1st of 2021 to get ahead of the California bill, which originally wasn't going to go into effect effect until 2023. And the sky was falling and you had all these commentators predicting calamity and they had, you had the Uniform Law Commission racing in to try to put together model name, image, and likeness legislation at the state level. And it, it was really a panic city. And while all these states couched their bills around protecting the values and the integrity of college sports, we want to give these kids some name, image, and likeness benefits, but we got to do it within these guardrails, these guardrails that were developed by the NCAA that really, when applied in their full force, would have left very little room for the athletes to make any meaningful money off of their name, image, and likeness. So these were restrictive laws, and they were values-based. So they were sold to the public. They were sold to the sports community writ large as values-based restrictions to preserve the integrity of college sports. But what has happened after this interim policy? So we had these state laws going into effect, and then you had this interim policy, which was far less restrictive than these state laws because it wasn't based on values. It was based on the irrational fear of continuing legal liability. 
But this interim policy was very bare-boned, and it turned out that the states that didn't have name, image, and likeness laws on the books were at a competitive advantage under the interim policy because these state laws were far more restrictive. And, and what do you see now? You see states ditching their state name, image, and likeness laws. Alabama did that. And you just have to laugh at this stuff. The Alabama law was more restrictive than, I think, any other state law. It had criminal provisions that attached to these third parties that were involved in the nil market. And initially, in a prior draft before the final bill was passed, there were criminal penalties for the athletes. So (laughs) there was an attempt here to really bring the hammer down on these people. And then when Alabama saw that this new interim policy gave other states a competitive advantage in the recruiting market, they ditched that law. And the behavior that was criminalized under that prior law is now an essential component of the name, image, and likeness marketplace in the state of Alabama. And I think one of the most important consequences of the NCAA and Mark Emmert's name, image, and likeness dump on June 30th of 2021 and their abdication of any enforcement and infractions responsibilities is that when you look at the history of the NCAA's enforcement and infractions regulatory authority and the way that it developed and how it was built so much on bluff, bluster, and fear, the the fear-based compliance by the institutions, member institutions, was only going to work so long as they were afraid and so long as they granted their consent to this corrupt national office infractions and enforcement program that Walter Byers ruled with an iron fist. And Walter Byers was the infractions and enforcement dictator. And Mark Emmert isn't able to pull that off. Instead of trying to enforce the rules that the member institutions, I think, still believed should be enforced. He just dumped all of the nil garbage at their feet and said, we're going to do nothing. And now it's your problem. You deal with it. And the justification offered for the NCAA refusing to enforce its own rules was that they were afraid that they might get sued. Well, they were already getting sued. When Mark Emmert made his nil dump, they were defending the house suit in California, which is O'Bannon 2.0. It is a name, image, and likeness lawsuit. And that's going to play out however it plays out. But what has happened as a result of this flimsy interim policy, which the NCAA said it wasn't going to enforce, is that it has abdicated its throne when it comes to enforcing its own rules. And rules have no value if they aren't enforced and if the people who are subject to those rules refuse to consent to be governed by those rules or any authority that tries to enforce them. And that's the state of the regulation of college sports in May of 2022. All of the power that the NCAA national office had in its infractions and enforcement program that Walter Byers built and nurtured for decades, it's gone. And really what you see is that the bluff and bluster that Walter Byers relied on to achieve the regulatory authority of the NCAA national office in the 1950s that he carefully groomed over the years was nothing more than an illusion. And that's what I meant at the beginning of the episode when I said that there were some structural flaws in the entire regulatory model. And one of them, I think, is that the infractions and enforcement 
program was far more vulnerable than people understood. And all it took was a, a weak leader to expose that structural flaw. And one of the ironies in the rise and fall of the NCAA's enforcement and infractions authorities is that it began through a series of fortuitous events in the 1950s. And a strong leader was able to use those opportunities to create the illusion of power, and he instilled fear in the membership. And while there's no doubt that the infractions and enforcement police state that Walter Byers created was corrupt and unjust. I don't think you can make the case that it was ineffective. It was highly effective. And then 70 years later, we had another set of fortuitous circumstances, historic circumstances that required the NCAA to place its values above its fear and its self-interest. But we had a weak leader and that weak leader brought 70 years of iron-fisted regulatory control and infractions and enforcement authorities to its knees with merely a whimper. And it was almost immediately after Mark Emmert and the NCAA waved the white flag on their regulatory authority that the uh, Constitution Committee sprang to life and we began this process of transferring power from the NCAA National Office to the divisions, which means for all intents and purposes, to the Power Five. And now the Power Five have to figure out what the hell they're going to do. And, and, and they're in a tough spot. So you now have this uh, transformation committee that was put together after the ratification of the new constitution, which gives Division One the power to do whatever the hell it wants to. That really falls into the category of be careful what you ask for. I have characterized that power play as nothing more than the extension of the autonomy movement. And I mentioned earlier, I did that episode on autonomy 2.0. That's worth checking out. But the, the rhetoric that's been coming from Greg Sankey and Julie Cromer, the co-chair of this transformation committee has centered around enforcement and infractions. They've been talking about that ad nauseum as one of the areas they're really focusing on, and they really want to make sure that they get some regulations in place so that Division One can start exercising some intelligent enforcement authority. But we don't know what's happening there, and there doesn't appear to be any action. I've been through all the minutes of the meetings of this transformation committee, and they raise more questions than they answer. So we have that, and then we behind the scenes, we have the Power Five going back to Congress. And in Sankey's comments, he's starting to sound a hell of a lot more like Mark Emmert. Yeah, now that straight talk Sankey is in the captain's chair and everybody's pointing to him as the anointed one, his rhetoric is looking more and more like the empty suit Mark Emmert. So we don't know what's really going on behind the scenes there. And the other thing I, I want to say with respect to enforcement jurisdiction is that we've, I, I think, seen pretty clearly that the NCAA is incapable of being an enforcement uh, regulator of college sports and uh, enforcing its rules. We've seen that the conferences aren't very good at it. And in this nil dump, we've seen that state agencies aren't good at it. And certainly the institutions aren't any good at it because they have these competing interests. They have all these restrictions that are values-based, but really the only value is money and competitive advantage. And that's what they're prioritizing. But I think it's important to ask, how in the hell does the Power Five think that having a federal corporation, a, a federalization of the name, image, and likeness law going to lead to a different result? Who's going to be in charge there? What's the enforcement mechanism? Are we going to try to replicate the IRS? 
Or is this just going to be another flaccid, ineffective enforcement agency, which I think is true at the state level? And, and nobody's asking those questions. So the bill that all these lobbyists, these Power Five NCAA lobbyists are pointing to is the gold standard in this Moran bill. It would put together a federal corporation that would basically be in charge of enforcement or set the rules for enforcement and engagement of nil rules at the institutional level. But they don't talk about how that's going to work in practice and how that's going to be any more effective than the failures closer to the ground. Those failures are undeniable. And all of these crack reporters looking under every rock for corrupt nil deals aren't asking the obvious questions about the regulation of college sports and where this quest for federal intervention fits into the regulatory and enforcement model. So I think what's happening here as a result of these extraordinary events of the perfect storm, and, and most particularly in the summer of 2021, is that we have a great vacuum. I'm, I'm going to call this the great vacuum. And that vacuum exists at the regulatory level. It exists at the enforcement and infractions level. And it exists at the propaganda level, because now the NCAA really isn't an effective propaganda machine. And that has been one of its primary purposes all along, is to uh, shovel out this propaganda, amateurism, student-athlete, collegiate model. And uh, they were pretty good at that for a long time, but they don't have any credibility now. So now the propaganda monopoly has been dissolved as well. And the Power Five's trying to step in to assume that mantle. And it has been a cluster muck, if you look at it honestly. And I don't see much leadership coming from the Transformation Committee on the propaganda front. And quite frankly, I don't think they're as good at it as Mark Emmert was. That was his primary value, an empty suit propagandist. He was brilliant at that. And he stayed in his position now for what's going on 13 years. He's been in that office for 12 years collecting a 3 to $4 million a year salary. But the propaganda market's in play, and that's really important right now. I would say that the propaganda market is as important to the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries now as it has ever been, and it has become more diffuse. It's a really interesting dynamic. When the propaganda was funneled through all of the institutional interests from the Power Five, through the NCAA national office, then through the governing boards, and ultimately to the NCAA president, there was a control over the message that is absent now. And so I think what the Power Five are doing instinctively is that they are relying on their direct connections at the business level to the sports entertainment market and media. And the sports media has become a really important propaganda tool to the Power Five. And I'm going to talk about that some more when I talk about some of these articles that have come up in the nil context. It's really interesting stuff, I think. And over the last couple of weeks, all the Power Five conferences have had their spring meetings. And uh, I'll just note with some irony that these meetings are held the most expensive, exclusive meeting venues in the country. And these Power Five conferences are spending an absurd amount of money and they're complaining about nil income. Again, just another mind-bending irony there. But all you get out of these meetings, all we've gotten out of these meetings is uh, nil panic, nil, nil, nil. But the, the great vacuum at the regulatory level, then at the infractions level, and now at the propaganda level is really putting some pr on the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries because they are on the clock. And I want to close this out by talking a little bit about the most 
potent external regulator that the NCAA and Power Five have ever faced. And it's not the federal judiciary. It's not Congress. It's not state legislatures. It's not the NLRB or, or the Fair Labor Standards Act requirements. It is free markets. And in the very first episode that I did, I talked about the perfect storm and this battle to eliminate external regulatory threats, and that ultimately the battle between the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries, NCAA and Power Five on the one hand, and the athletes and their rights and interests on the other, is really a question about who gets to decide. And the NCAA and Power Five have been fighting like mad over the last three years now to make sure that they and they alone get to decide what the rules are, who gets to enforce them, and how they're enforced. And they are losing that battle, it seems, right now, or they perceive that they are. And one of the interesting things about this guidance memo is that in that early setup where they're talking about the necessity for the memo itself, it says, the working group believes 10 months into the new nil environment is an appropriate time to review the emerging nil environment. Why 10 months? Why now? And the reason for that is that the application of American freedoms and free market forces has been so powerful and so irrepressible that the the Power Five are panicked right now. And they have multiple motivations. One is to try to preserve this competitive advantage relative to the group of five and this nil market activity in a less restricted, more American business model and, and market freedom model is giving theoretically the, the group of five the power to try to level the playing field with this insurmountable competitive advantage that the Power Five had gotten under the NCAA umbrella. And that's a problem for the Power Five. But I think the, the bigger problem for the Power Five, and, and this is how I couch it in my very first episode of the podcast, is that free market forces have the potential to more effectively and more efficiently dispel so much of the propaganda that this entire business model has been based on. And the the principal argument behind the amateurism-based compensation limits and then the use of amateurism in these antitrust suits as a pro-competitive justification is that without amateurism, the market will collapse. And that has been disproven. And it is being reinforced by all of this nil market activity that is the product of free markets working their magic. And the NCAA has been afraid of that since the 1950s. And the Power Five now sees their carefully calibrated and insurmountable advantage in the uh, talent acquisition market and the overall market as under siege. And it is free markets that are forcing that panic and I think will force change. And I think that there's going to come a point where the Power Five aren't going to be able to go back to Congress and argue with a straight face that the application of free market forces that means the end of amateurism as we knew it is going to result in the fatal collapse of college sports. And it's really an interesting dance because when you hear these spokespeople, they're all trying to make it sound as if they support nil. This guidance memo is a great example. They're trying to play both sides of the fence. Oh yeah, we support nil, but the sky is falling, the sky is falling. The, the usual propaganda. But the more this market evolves and the more money is moving in that market and in the system without causing any harm to the existence of college sports or the value of college sports, by all indices, it appears that the value of college sports is just exploding. It's going through the roof as this nil market is playing out. So 
So what's your beef, Power Five? Their beef is that they've lost control over their destiny. That's really the, the issue here. And when they try to speak the language of American freedoms and athletes' rights, they just can't do it. They, they can't do it well because this entire business model has been cultured into un-American principles that have been disguised with American virtues. And I think that dishonest portrayal to the outside world is under assault right now. And the Soviet-like climate and culture of big-time college sports, no matter how you dress it up, is simply un-American. And when the people who have built this corrupt system and who have defended this corrupt system try to speak in terms of athletes' rights, it just rings hollow. And it doesn't matter whether it's the NCAA or Greg Sankey, the Power Five commissioners, the athletics directors, the university presidents, or external groups like the Knight Commission and the, the Drake Group. All of those interests are trying to speak the language of American freedom and athletes' rights in the context of a business model that is fundamentally un-American, and they just can't do it. They're speaking athletes' rights as a second language. It is not their native tongue. Their orientation and their indoctrination has been to the protection of institutional interests and to revenue streams, not to athletes' rights. And it's really interesting when you listen to the spokespeople now, like uh, Greg Sankey and Julie Cromer, they can't make that transition well, and they will not come out and say openly and outright that the business model that they had been defending was un-American and what we're seeing through the application of true American values and American freedoms and federal laws designed to protect those values and freedoms is that the free markets are working pretty doggone well and they are not the threat that we portrayed them to be. But you're not going to hear these people say that. They simply can't acknowledge that. And that reminds me, when I, when I talk about this in terms of American values, I'm, I'm drawn back to Miles Brand's 2006 State of the Association speech when he was laying out the collegiate model as a framework for big-time college sports, and you maximize the hell out of big-time football and big-time men's basketball, and you justify that exploitation, that financial exploitation, which I believe is also racial exploitation, by taking that money and sending it downstream to interests that can't pay for themselves, uh, mostly through non-revenue slash Olympic sports. And, and participation opportunities. And Miles Brand's signature line in that speech to justify this hypocrisy, and it's a line he delivered with emphasis, and that is that amateur defines the participant, not the enterprise. And that is breathtaking hypocrisy. I think you see this battle for freedom, and you see this issue now evolving into civil rights and social justice in addition to fundamental fairness and compliance with the free competition laws that this country is predicated upon. So you have the, the values underlying this corrupt business model under attack and the powerful interests benefiting from this corrupt un-American business model are scared to death and they should be. But that battle between these two value systems is still in the balance, and it remains to be seen how it's going to be resolved. All right, so with that, I'm going to close this episode out. I want to thank you for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you, and I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Take care.